Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And you go back about 11 Psalms to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. And then down a couple of verses. When I Consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? And I'll stop right there. I don't know about you, but um, I love to observe the world that God has created around us. And uh, this is a, actually a picture that uh, I took with my cell phone on the beach this past summer. Here's another. Isn't that beautiful? You just look at, at what God has made and just rejoice in the creation that is ours to enjoy. That is what Psalm 18 is talking about. That is what Psalm 19, that is what Psalm 8 is talking about. Um, we also uh, enjoy the mountains. And uh, right behind Betsy, just for information's sake, those are treetops. Where's Gary helping her? I'm just, God, somebody's got to take the picture. <laughs> and at the top of that mountain, uh, we have a one, there was a 360 view. Actually, that's called Lookout Mountain. It's in uh, North Carolina, Montreal, North Carolina. And uh, there's a 360 view up there, and somebody was kind enough uh, to take uh, our pictures. D don't you love the creation, what God has made to enjoy it? As the psalmist says. I, uh, and by the way, this morning, I'm looking down my driveway. I I'm standing on my front porch, and I took this picture this morning. Actually, actually I took 12 pictures with gradations of the sun coming up. And uh, as I was and then I sent them all to my email so that I could show them to you. And it crashed. And I was thinking, okay, cell phone, what man has made. This, what God has made. <laughs> and it doesn't break. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's something that Betsy and I really uh, enjoy. Last August 21st, around 2.30 in the afternoon, I know what probably most, if not all of you, were doing. The full solar eclipse. Uh, we were probably, all, almost all of us were involved in watching that in one form or another. It's just awesome. The heavens declare the glory of God. All, all creation is intended to glorify God. Right? But, something happened so that things are not what they should be. Something went terribly wrong. Just in the last two months, here are the wildfires in California, the most devastating, I think, in California's history. And what happens when there is no uh, vegetation 
to stop torrential rains that come after that. Uh, you move from the wildfires in December to the mudslides in January this month, which have been devastating. I, I, last I heard, 17 people have died, and they haven't found everyone. Uh, it's, it's an awful thing uh, to have lived through or to live through that kind of experience. So we've got the beauty of nature, but we also also have the tragedies of nature, the natural disasters that we talk about. I mean, on the one hand, we've got just ultimate cuteness, right? Okay, let's just get it over with. Let's just say it together. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, oh. <laughs> okay, the pictures are, are a little bit corny. But uh, I, I think you get what I mean. There's, there's two sides to this story. A few years ago, I, uh, I was at Harvard University, and I think I told you about this once before. But uh, I was uh, uh, right across from the chapel is a, an academic hall it's the where the philosophy department is housed called Emerson Hall. It was named for Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was actually uh, erected in 1905, and uh, it is the philosophy building. You can see that on the side of it. But here's what I want you to notice at the very top of it. From Psalm 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Can you see that? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Carved in stone, Psalm 8, 4. Not everybody knows about Harvard's uh, Christian roots. Um, the Harvard seal today is simply the word veritas or truth. But here's what it used to be, truth for Christ and the church. That's how it was originally uh, created. And that was the original inscription. And that was uh, changed over the years. The for Christ and the church got dropped. Okay, back to this building. This psalm, Psalm 8-4, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Uh, on this building, which is probably, by the way, the best-known building uh, at Harvard University because that's where Love Story was filmed, if any of you go back to 1970. Uh, but uh, that's, that's what it was known for. It was the backdrop for that. But Emerson Hall houses the philosophy department, and they're very Precious few people in the philosophy department there whose goal is truth for Christ and the church. Psalm 8 reminds us of our weakness and our smallness compared to the majesty of God as the creator of all things. What's interesting is when this hall was dedicated in 1905, an alternative motto was suggested, and this was it. The Humanist Manifesto, Protagoras theme, man is the measure of all things. Those were, there were two options, Psalm 8-4 or Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. What you have here is a clash, my friends, of worldviews. That is exactly what this is. The standard joke on campus is that the motto 
above Emerson Hall really means what is God, that man is mindful of him. So this is a clash of worldviews. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the world, in all the earth. So is the world glorious or is it terrifying? Is it beautiful or is it ugly? Is it a place of, of peaceful wonderment or is it vicious? Which is it? Yes, it's, it's not an either or, is it? It's a both and. They are both truth. And the story of creation is told in Romans 1 and in Romans 5 and in Romans 8. Those three chapters. The focus of Romans chapter 1 was on the beauty and majesty of creation. If you have your Bibles open to Romans, look at chapter 1. I'm going to read starting uh, with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So creation is actually the first missionary to the, to the unbelieving world. People who don't know look at the world around them and they're pointed to a creator to whom we are accountable. But there's a dark side to the creation. Romans 5 tells us that something went terribly wrong. Sin entered into the world. Romans 5.12, for example, says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then goes on to describe the extent of the fallenness, not only for humanity, but for the whole world. So here we come to Romans chapter 8, with verses that show us that the creation itself awaits redemption. And I want to spend some time on these verses this morning because I don't, as we're going through the book of Romans chapter by chapter and verse by verse, I don't think that we talk about nature very much. What do you teach your children? What do you teach your grandchildren about the world, about the nature of of nature? Um, Now, just by way of review in the context, in Romans 1, Romans 8, 1 through 17, which we've already covered We've talked about how the Holy Spirit gives life and grants sonship to believers. Verse 1 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends in verse 17 with the spectacular truth that believers will one day be co-glorified with Jesus Christ. The unasked question is this. If we have been freed from the law of sin and death, as verse 17 tells us, then why do we still suffer from sin and death? And if we have a share in God's glory, then where is that glory now? Because I'm not feeling it. Or look at Romans 8 differently. What if Paul went from verse 17 straight to verse 31? Right now, those are just numbers for you, but just look at it. Look at verse 17. Romans 8, 17 
And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Wouldn't that be a great leap? Just skip all those verses in between. Why did he not do that? The answer is that there is a not yet between verses 17 and 31. And we've pointed out that the Bible teaches an already but not yet worldview. We have already been redeemed, but our full redemption is not yet accomplished. It is certain, but it is not yet completed. We live in this not yet moment, in this not yet time period, which means that we follow Jesus as he suffers in his suffering as we await the final redemption of our bodies and minds. And it also means that we await the healing of this wounded, fallen world. We've already seen in our studies prior to today that in the not yet period, suffering is in one sense a cause for rejoicing. We said that in the very first verses of the very first book of the New Testament, the book of James, the first one to be written, it begins with these words. First words of the New Testament. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2-4. Here's the deal. We can grow spiritually through the suffering in this not yet period. But the creation itself, the world that we inhabit, isn't growing. There is no spiritual capacity that creation has for growth. It's just waiting. And that's what these verses today are about in Romans 8. The word that captures the not yet waiting period is the word groaning. It's used three times in Romans 8. Take a look uh, at these three. First of all, the creation groans in verses 19 through 22. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, the creation longs to be set free from the curse of sin. Verse 22, the whole creation groans and suffers. Something's not right. This world is not as it came from the hand of God. Secondly, the children of God groan in verses 23 through 25. We, we who are adopted sons and daughters await our full redemption. Verse 23 says, even as we ourselves groan within ourselves, awaiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. Something is not right. The world is not as it came from the hand of God. And then in verses 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit groans. Verse 26 says, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Which, why do we in, our, in weakness need this intercession? Because something is not right. This world is not as it came from the hand of God. So our focus today is on the first of these three. The creation groaning. That's our text today. Now, look with me in verses 17 and 18. As God's adopted sons and daughters, verse 15 says we cry out, Abba, Father. We are, verse 17, 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's the already part. That's done. But we live in the not yet part. Now we suffer. We groan. Verse 18 is the key that unlocks those three, those three sections of this book. It explains that when we arrive at that glory, we're going to look back at the sufferings now. And you know what we're going to say? We're going to say, what suffering? One saint put it this way. In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And by the way, when she said that, it was in the 1500s. Teresa of Avila. Let me repeat that. In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Our focus is on verses 19 through 22. We know about our own groaning, but the curtain is pulled aside for us to have a, a, a glimpse of greater reality than what we see, touch, taste, and handle. Because we're limited in our view of reality. When Carl Sagan uh, monotonously um, began the Cosmos series every week with the statement, the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. He was not drawing a scientific conclusion based upon evidence. He was giving his personal philosophy. Biblically, there is more to reality than what you can see, what you can taste, what you can handle. Here's what Paul wants you to know. The curtain is pulled back, not in a pantheistic way, but the rest of the story is given that Romans 1 and Romans 5 did not tell us. Here's what Romans 8 is telling us. The creation that you inhabit is not indifferent to its own fallenness. Not in God's eyes. There's a cosmic imbalance that took place when we sinned. It's, it's not only that, that we are fallen, but that over which we exercise dominion is also fallen. And it's not because creation sinned, but because mankind sinned. And our judgment extended to that over which we were to have dominion as well. Here, creation is personified in these verses to make the point very clear. Verse 19, look at verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And Paul is actually leading with the conclusion of what he's about to say. Creation is eagerly waiting for something really big to happen. Verse 19 is telling us. The, the, the term anxious longing is actually a, a, a compound word from a word that, that means away from and the word head and the word to watch. Away from, head, and to watch. Here's the idea. I'm going to show you what it means. It's like when your head, like a turtle, sticks out. It's, it's creation, as one person says, it's like creation is on tiptoe, sticking its head out, waiting, looking for the redemption of the sons of God. That's, what, that's the picture of the word, to, to watch with outstretched head. <laughs> and creation is not eagerly waiting its own redemption. I want you to notice that creation is awaiting our final redemption. When we are put on display, revealed as the church, revealed as the bride, the body of Christ, before all of creation. It's not a judgment upon nature. It's a judgment upon man. Let me read to you from 
Genesis 1. Just here's how God created things. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth. Every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth, to which has, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. The evening, and there was morning, day six. All of that was destroyed in the fall, or diminished in the fall. Look at verse 20 of Romans 8. He explains, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The word futility means uselessness. It's the idea that its intended purpose was not met. Why? Again, not because the creation did something wrong, but instead because of him who subjected it. Who's that? Well, it's not Adam. He doesn't have that kind of power. It's not Satan. Satan can only do what God permits. Ultimately, this has to refer to the sovereign God who subjected his own creation to futility, aligning the redemption of man's world with the redemption of mankind. The redemption of that over which we were to have dominion aligned with our own redemption so that we do not live in a perfect world. We live in a broken world. If we lived in a perfect world, we wouldn't turn to him, would we? So that is that the point here is what was it like for God to subject his own creation to futility? Why would God do that? Betsy showed me an article um, written about Johnny Erickson Tata and actually talking about groanings uh, and, and, and the struggles of living in a fallen world. She exemplifies that if you know her story. But as part of one of the things she said she holds on to, it's, it's this statement that a friend gave her, and I'm going to give it to you. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God subjected the creation to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, reject, who subjected it. Verse 20 continues into verse 21, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. The fallenness of the world is like our own slavery to sin that's described in Romans 6. The slavery to, contru- to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And here's where the Bible is actually inviting us to a before and after comparison of the fall. Before man sinned, before all these things happened, if you look at the, at the, book, of, at the book of Genesis and, and infer what the creation was like based upon the ways in which God judged the earth after that. Here's what you find. Before, and some of these are just explicitly stated, before there was no death in the animal or the human the human or the animal domains. 
There was recycling in the vegetable kingdom. <laughs> we use the term death uh, loosely uh, for plants. My plant died. Um, I have two plants in my office. They've never died. Never. They're plastic, but they've never died. Okay. My plant died. The Bible uses death of that which has the animating life principle of blood. So their life principle is in the blood. That's why blood has so much significance in atonement. So the Bible wouldn't say a plant died. After, but that's before the fall. No death. After the fall, the wages of sin is death. And the first biblical world, and uh, the first world, there was no death. One day, death will be removed. Before the fall, we had dominion over the created world. I could go to, over on a safari and find a lion and say, down boy, I'm your king. And he would obey. <laughs> the earth was filled also with food, with vegetation. As humans, I believe that we, had, we were at 100% brain power. That's what we would have been like created by God, right? We would have been at spiritually 100% in fellowship with God and his word as, as, he, uh, as we fellowshiped with him. Uh, on a daily basis, we would have been at 100% health and would have, would have lived in that state of 100% health. What about after the fall? Well, if I want to go see a lion, obey a human, I have to pay money to a circus. As far as food is concerned, now, labor, which is a good thing from God, becomes toil. By the sweat of your brow, you'll earn your food. We're fallen in our mental capacities Adam hid from omnipresence. Think about that. We're not 100% anything anymore. Mentally, as Scripture says, we now see through a glass darkly, but then that will be changed. Physically, at that moment, we began to die. And the ratio has been fairly consistent. One out of one dies. Spiritually, we are in need of redemption through the blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, creation carries within itself the potential for natural disasters, wildfires, mudslides, hurricanes, on and on and on. We were not created for the world that we now inhabit. We inhabit a fallen world, but God created us for an unfallen world. And this fallen world groans for restoration. And I'm getting ahead of myself. But I believe that because of the work of the last Adam, we're going to get back more than we lost, actually. When John saw the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, he ran out of vocabulary to describe it, as did Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Okay. In, in chapter 8, verse 21, Creation will join in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The shackles of slavery will be placed, replaced with freedom. So, so what? Okay, that's the passage. So what? Paul could have gone from verse 17 to verse 31. But instead, he talks about the fact that our glorious future does not blot out the pain and the suffering of the world that we now inhabit that's a part of our lives. So, 
creation has been faithfully doing its job as a witness to the creator from Romans chapter 1. So it is a, a faithful first missionary. In Romans 5, we learn how death entered into the creation. But in Romans 8, there is coming a day when creation will be restored. But that happens when we are restored and put on display as God's church, the bride, the body of Christ, his bride awaiting that marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this is a part of the biblical picture of what happens in the future. Now, I want to make two major points. And you'll know I notice that I didn't say I want to conclude with two major points. Because they're major points. First one is this. What do you take from this? Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, teach children about creation. The view of, crea of, the view of nature that we get from the Bible is very countercultural to what we see in the world around us. How does the unbelieving world look at creation? The, for those who hold, for example, that that reality is nature only. There's nothing beyond this world. This is it. For those people, there's nothing more beyond what we can see, feel, or hear. Then that means that this world can have no purpose. There is no God that gives it purpose. The world got here by the Big Bang, and we got here through evolutionary processes, and there is no God. There's nothing else beyond this life. You die, that's it, and that is the predominant worldview in our culture. But if this world is all there is, what that means is creation doesn't groan. Creation's as good as, it gonna get, as it's going to get. Creation, in fact, isn't creation. <laughs> it's nature. And right now, it's just there. It's not moving towards anything. There is no morality that we need to feel about nature because there's no moral lawgiver. There's no standard of right and wrong other than codes that we self-impose. And natural disasters aren't good or bad. They just are. Good and bad are umbrella terms under which I put things that please me or displease me. They're just conveniences. They're a way of speaking. So, you can't even say that nature is as it was intended to be because that implies that there's a being who had the intention. See what I mean? You just back all these things out of the understanding of the world and that's what you're left with. There's no meaning, so there's no reason to search for any meaning. Ernst Nagel, the physicist, said, we are nothing more than an episode between two oblivions. Stephen Hawking said, we are chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. I think most of us prefer Kansas when Kansas sang, all we are is dust in the wind. And some say that we are doing great harm to the planet, and they subscribe to the philosophy of one group, and I just have to think it's a tongue-in-cheek thing, but they put out a slo their slogan was, save the planet, kill yourself. And as far as I know, they're still in business. I recently saw a uh, movie on TV that came out in 2008. 
And it was a remake of a 1951 film. The film was The Day the Earth Stood Still. And there's Michael Rennie, the star of The Day the Earth Stood Still. The premise is advanced aliens who are advanced technologically and who are morally superior come to Earth to confront us. And in the 1951 movie, the point was to warn us to stop our violent ways. Uh, because in 1951, it was at right for the atomic bomb, right? So stop your violent ways. And, and, and that was it, and that was the point of the movie, built around that premise. However, in 2008, it was remade, and the alien was played by Keanu Reeves, who I think may really be an alien. Not sure. And he kept saying in the movie, I came to save the earth. I came to save the earth. But then you learn that the way to save the earth was to kill all the humans. I came to save the earth. To quote the movie, he said, if earth dies, you die. If you die, earth lives. It was all about global warming and fracking and fossil fuels and all those kinds of things. So, the culture around us has a lot of virtue posturing uh, where the culture becomes sometimes hysterical and, and strange, like the advertisement from People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, uh, said, quote, cows are people too, and drinking their milk is a denigration of their creaturehood, unquote. Which makes me wonder, if you get sick, should you take medicine to kill the microorganism that's inhabiting your body? I mean, who's to say that you are more valuable than that microorganism just because you're bigger? I've often wondered that. Well, if there is no creator, then there is no right or wrong, including right or wrong about the environment. That's just inescapable. And if there is no right or wrong, and if we're the dominant species, then why should we be noble? to save the planet for future generations. Because when I die, that's it. Why? What is the value that anchors that I should have a good purpose about the, the environment? It's only what I choose to impose on it, and then it dies with me. So why should I be a steward of the creation? Why should I inconvenience myself to preserve the planet? Why should I value preservation of this world if I'm going to die? Teach your children that the only true way to value this world is if it's creation. If God gave us dominion over the earth to rule it, to use it, yes, but to use it as stewards to advance his glory, not to abuse it. Use it, don't abuse it. So in Romans 1.22, Paul gives the out, describes the outcome of looking at creation as nature only without God as the creator. Here's what he says. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We inhabit an amazing world. And it's, it's, it's a witness to the majesty of our creator. And it's evident whether you're looking through a telescope or a microscope. The order of the world is so complex and so intricate that the more evidence we gather about that, the more difficult it is to deny that there is a designer or a creator whose name is God. And, and, and parents, and, and this, this is the end of that one big point, first of the big points. 
Parents, I think this is one of the most teachable parts of Romans to your children. Don't be indifferent to the beauty, the majesty of the world around you with your children. Talk about those things. What should you teach your children? Show them the loveliness of creation. I used to take my, my, my kids up to uh, the... We were living in Dayton, Tennessee, the largest hill on, in town. Uh, and we'd get ice cream, and we'd go up there, and we'd just watch the sunset. And just a, a father-child time, just on occasion. And uh, one, one day, when I was with one of my daughters, we were sitting there looking at sunset, and a herd of deer came by. There was about 12 of them. It was so beautiful. Just those are moments to, to capture, to revel in the beauty of God as creator and what he has done. But at the same time, so we're listening to God's first missionary. At the same time, expose them to the fallenness of creation. So when natural disasters happen, explain, teach them Romans 1, Romans 5, and Romans 8. Something went horribly wrong here. And take them to Romans 8 and read these verses with them. And then take them to Revelation 20 through 22 to see how it all unfolds. When you see the, the beauty and the majesty of creation with your children, talk to them about it. When you see disasters, talk to them about it. So that's the first point. Here's the second point. I want to turn, return to the verse that introduces the three groanings, Romans 8, 18. Because this is doctrine for hurting people, and I'll be brief here. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So, sufferings now, glory then. Sufferings now, glory then. Compared in what sense? Compared as being of the same kind? You just two, two relatively close things. You, I'll compare Verizon and Sprint. Maybe a few pennies difference, right? Compare how? No. Compare as being of a different kind, like apples and oranges. How do you compare apples and oranges? No. Compared in this sense. Compared in the sense, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Compared in the sense that, as what he says, they are not worthy to be compared. In heaven, you will never look at the sufferings of this life, no matter how severe they are, and, you, and say, you know, I think it was, was a, to, a toss-up. But I think I came out even here in heaven, or at least I didn't lose on the deal. You're never going to say that. You're never going to say, you know, uh, this was worth it, I'm pretty sure. You're, no one will, will even say in heaven, you know, this is far superior to my old life. We will not even say, you know, there's no comparison. We won't even say that. Rather, we'll say there can be no comparison. Not, there's just no human analogy that's even close. None is worthy to be used. They're not worthy to be compared. No scripture writer tells believers who have finite minds the details of heaven. The Holy Spirit knows full well we couldn't comprehend it. But the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. So everything around us to sum up, points to the fact that this world is not as it came from the hand of God. Everything points to the fact that we ourselves are broken, wounded, sin-filled, 
and can't even keep the New Year's resolutions that we made two weeks ago. We have the desire, but not the power. Everything around us points to the fact that even with our failings, we still desire more. We, we desire meaning. We desire significance. Or as Scripture tells us in Ecclesiastes 3, God has placed eternity in our hearts. We want to make sense of it all. Everything points to the fact that however much we may want to, we can't fix what's wrong. And everything Scripture tells us points to the fact that only God can fix this. And he has already put everything in motion. The not yet clock is ticking. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we do not look at things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal.